1: full service radio, this is Bad Feminist Making Films, a podcast presented by Risa and Ethnosine Collectives. We're your hosts, Maggie Lemire and Mia Sarah, And we'd like to welcome you back to our podcast, a show where we talk to bad feminist filmmakers who are confronting and changing the film industry through intersectional and decolonial practice. So
2: in order to combat the really deep inequities in the filmmaking industries, we think it's really important to highlight decolonial practices that need to be implemented across the filmmaking process. So, all the way from the beginning, from funding through the production of filmmaking and specific films and programming. Today, we're going to share a specific example of how to confront and deconstruct colonial practices in documentary filmmaking. But in particular, I want to break down what decolonial means. For those who don't understand what it means, it gets at the colonial residue that continues to exist in our society. It refers to the United States colonial history and how that continues to manifest in power structures throughout different industries and throughout our society that has inherently become internalized beliefs about the world.
1: Yeah, it really speaks to why people think they have the right to do certain things or that they think there's this thing as just being a fly on the wall and we're objective um, and, and how we really need to question our assumptions very deeply and why we feel comfortable turning the camera one way but not the other Um, and today we're gonna have a really amazing guest i'm really excited about this episode um it's the wonderful the very brave courtney simon she's currently a student at the university of north carolina chapel hill she's a filmmaker she's an activist she's a fellow at next doc Um, and this year she and a group of next doc fellows attended the true false film festival where she made a profound statement about how we need to decolonize film following a screening of another film called The Commons, which represented um, the controversy around the Silent Sam statue at the, at the Chapel Hill campus. Um, so let's go ahead and actually play a clip of Courtney at True False after the screening of The Commons when she addressed some problems that she saw
3: a student-led documentary on the Confederate monument, Silent Sam, and the silencing of student activism on Chapel Hill's campus. Three of my friends emerged as characters in this film, the cons, Maya, Michelle, and Ando. And yet, despite being featured as characters, they did not know they were part of this film until I told them on Friday night after watching it. There are multiple injustices done in showing this film. By only showing our protest and a small part of our student sit-in, the film reasserts the idea that students are not willing to have civil discourse or organize effectively when, in fact, students were actively holding meetings with administrators and faculty meetings.
2: I really encourage everyone to watch the entire statement. It was really very specific and gave tangible examples. So we'll make sure to post it on the Bad Feminist Making um, Films Facebook page um, so you can see it and also you can read her statement. Um, but Maggie, why is it so important to talk about this topic?
1: Well, decolonizing film is, of course, at the heart of bad feminist making films. It has to go hand in hand with our feminism. You know, kind of going to the idea of, of why we're bad feminists is uh, on this podcast, we really want to open up spaces for real learning and reflection and growing, you know, for ourselves as filmmakers. And um, ideally becoming better filmmakers um, and better storytellers who make more powerful work because it's the work that we authentically can and should be making in deep collaboration and connection with with community. Um, and Courtney really beautifully articulated, A challenge but also solutions and so today I'm really excited that um, she can share you know her personal experience but also her vision of where she thinks Mm -hmm. uh, filmmaking should go and some of the principles for filmmakers to really consider to know should I be making this film and if I am how do I do it in a way that is aligned with social justice because you know documentary sort of claims programmers claim festivals claim that's what they're all about and often the practice of filmmaking and the programming of filmmaking etc isn't living up to that we know that mm-hmm. um, yeah. mia Sarah why is it important from your perspective
2: we really need to disrupt the way that films have been made um, are being shown in order to really make filmmaking and make our world equitable like we need to change and advance our practices and often we need a really clear example and I would say like this is a awesome opportunity to reflect on, you know, what practices create certain kinds of films, like the the film The Commons, but also we're gonna talk a little bit more about Courtney's work. She is an impact producer on a documentary made by the student activist. So there's two really clear um filmmaking examples that we'll get to talk about today.
1: We should bring Courtney into the conversation. Yes, we should. <laughs> so Courtney Simon is a UNC
2: Chapel Hill undergraduate senior from Greenville, North Carolina. She's an activist who uses poetry, film, photography to celebrate the everyday heroism found in protests, Black identities, and womanhood. In 2018, she was one of the two lead producers and currently serves serves as the impact producer for that documentary I was referring to called Silent Sam. It's a participatory hybrid documentary short that discusses most recent student movement to remove UNC Chapel Hill's Confederate monument Silent Sam and the systemic silencing of activism on campus. Her research interest lies mainly in using documentary form as a practice of alternative healing in the communities of color. As a documentary filmmaker, she's a uh, 2018 fellow at NextDoc and an avid pursuer of using documentaries of practice for alternative healing for vulnerable communities and she hopes to use art to drive viewers past the point of empathy to the point of action. Welcome Courtney.
1: Hi Courtney. Hi, thank you. We're so excited to have you today. Um, When Mia, Sarah and I saw the clip um, of what happened at True False, you know, not only was it an incredibly powerful moment of you re- reading the statement um, that you and the Next Doc fellows put together. But also in the QA, um you have so much wisdom and so much to teach us uh, based on your experience working on Silent Sam and um, and of confronting the filmmakers of the Commons. But let's let's learn about how you developed this wisdom and these passions and these points of view. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and sort of how you started to get into filmmaking and how you started to see filmmaking as uh, the way you wanted, I suppose, to be in the world? Well, I would say that I first got interested in film. Actually, before I got interested in film, I ended up um,
3: sort of finding myself in activism through this organization called the Campus Y. Um, it's basically uh, kind of, I guess you can destri- describe it as like an activism nonprofit that's still based on campus. And so I was uh, co-president at the time. And one thing that I noticed is that with the way that we were situated and also being like a black leader of a predominantly white organization, I would hear stories from all across campus about what activists, different groups of activists were going through. Like, I felt like my job was to try to get those stories out. But, you know, eventually, um, sometimes it gets a little bit difficult to constantly recite those stories over and over again, or you can't remember them. And there was a moment when I realized, you know, after I graduate, um, or after I can no longer remember these stories and the people who have been through these things no longer remember their stories um, or can tell them, then all that information would be lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just so happened that around that time, I watched the uh, documentary 13th and saw like how 13th was being used almost like to create a foundation for understand mass, understanding mass incarceration. So instead of going to an activist who's already working for criminal justice, and having to sit down and uh, and have them explain everything to you, they could just say, go watch 13th and then come back to me, and then we'll have a deeper conversation about what actions you can take now, since we have that foundation. And also around that time, I, I ran into um, Lagaya Romero, who is a professor, or she was a visiting professor for the year in the journalism school. She had also told me about this resource that she had, and that she was teaching two classes, um, and that she... You know, let me talk about the issues that were going on on, on campus and a lot of the situations that activists were going through here. Uh, and I, at that point, I realized that, like, you know, you, through talking to her, that filmmaking could be the way to preserve their stories, allow activists and, and the students of color to be able to preserve a narrative that more often wouldn't really be seen because, you know, the university gets the power to control the narrative and, uh, and, and things like that. Uh, And at that point, I think in in going through Silent Sam, I think we kind of created a resource that preserved what really happened during activism and preserved the experiences and then also like celebrated student activists in a way that typically wasn't celebrated. Mm. Uh, And I think that experience has kind of like opened me up to the power of filmmaking. We don't have to sit down with people and explain everything. We can now give them a film that tells enough of the truth so that, they can create their own foundation.
1: Kind of going into like what's happened at UNC Chapel Hill and the story that you wanted to tell versus a story that was being told, can you tell us yeah. a little bit more about, um, about Silent Sam, the UNC Chapel Hill community, how, you know, the issue is, has been portrayed and sort of how you and other students, um, student activists in particular, what your story is and the story that you want to tell? Up until
3: uh, January there was a Confederate monument standing at the front part of our campus last semester in the beginning or before the first day of class the figurines which is, the figurine is what's actually called Silent Sam um, it's of a, a, of, a, of a soldier he's unnamed he stares blankly into the distance so that was what that was half of the monument and that was that part was torn down by students um, but before any of that happened this year there's been uh, A movement uh, almost since the statues uh, actually since black students have been on campus there's been a movement to remove Silent Sam there's been letters there's been uh, discussions with uh, chancellors and and uh, panels and all these other things Um, last year what we saw was a distinct change in what how people were deciding to go about trying to get the statue removed so uh, when Charlottesville, Virginia happened, everybody was reminded that Charlottesville was very similar to uh, what was going on in Chapel Hill. Folks that are monuments, and there had already been pro- protests at Charlottesville before. And so um, when that happened, there was a sort of a resurgence. It became even more important because we were saying that it, ha- it happened in Charlottesville, Virginia isn't that far. It could very easily happen here. So even now, it was already—it was already like a moral issue. But then it became an issue of safety and an issue of of um, safety, particularly for people of color. So over the course of the year, multiple actions happened. There was a a group of an anonymous students from across campus, not some affiliated with organizations, some not, threatened to sue the university on a case of Title IX. And then there was also a letter. So there's a first day of class protest, protest happened the first day, uh, a lot of people came and that turned into a 24-hour sit-in, and the people at the sit-in said that they would continue to sit in around the statue for 24 hours until the statue was removed. Uh, a couple weeks later, there was a boycott of all student goods that organization signed on to a letter uh, warning the university that they didn't make any kind of action that the boycott would happen. Um, so the university didn't make any action, so the boycott happened. And uh, at the, during, during the course of the boycott, there were committees in the campus Y, organizations in the campus Y, who would serve uh, food so that the boycott could be affordable for people who couldn't get to, um, like our downtown Franklin Street area to eat so they could get free food. Um, there were other organizations who, or other uh, people from the town would bring food to either the folks at the sitting in at statue or um, they might bring it to the Y sometimes. Uh, And so it was a lot of like collaboration in that way. So, and and also in in the midst of all this, within the, in looking at like silencing of student activism, there ended up being at the sit-in a police infiltration. So there was a policeman who came up to the sit-in folks, told them that his name was, uh, forgot his exact name. Um, But then folks found out later that he was actually a policeman when he had said his job was a mechanic and that he wasn't using his real name and the way they figured that out is because he responded to a fire in the quad near Silent Sam in uniform. So they had him standing guard in the quad at the same place where he was supposed to be, like, infiltrating, and I heard that the vice chancellor who supported that or arranged that has, like, proudly claimed credit for that since then. Um, And along with that, in the... In the, back in the in the campus Y, we were hanging up um, banners that had um, the, uh, uh, like, hashtag Black Lives Matter, pro don't come here. We had one about, you know, protecting DACA. All of those banners, even though uh, there, were, there was a content-neutral policy that was being selectively enforced. So every time we put up a political banner outside our building, which you know, we had already confirmed, with our people, that it was good. Uh, every time we hung a banner, mm-hmm. police would come and remove it. And mm-hmm. unless, but if we put up an, an apolitical banner, it would stay up for a week. So we were facing all these types of things. And in the midst of this, there's um, there are people who are going to see Chancellor Folt or going to see Vice Chancellors, and then asking, okay, so um, this is what people are asking. What what can you do? And basically getting shut down or um, being lied to, or Chancellor Folt would have a tantrum or something like that, you know? Like, and there wouldn't be real, uh, like there, are, there would be people coming to try to figure out what real actionable steps the university can take and would be willing to take, and they would basically just get shut down. And so that, all that's happening in the midst of it. There was another um, time where, uh, in the midst of everything, a group of students went to have a meeting with Chancellor Folt. And uh, they were talking about how, uh, like, uh, there were there, it was a conversation that turned, didn't really didn't really go anywhere. And the chancellor asked them to come up with some random names of uh, of a group. They, were, they weren't really affiliated to any group when they showed up. They were just concerned students. A little while later, there was a uh, a meeting that was had between the chancellor Folt and the black students on campus, and. Uh, during the meeting and all the black students, uh, she said the name of this group and said, I've met with this group and nobody in the room knew what it was because it was a fake name. And basically like said that, asserted that that was her way of saying that she's spoken to students. So that was kind of the things that we were dealing with if that makes sense. There was a lot of, there there was a great deal of pettiness and Mm -hmm. in the midst of like all these like real forms of of silencing and all these real efforts that we're making, Whenever someone would hear about what's going on on campus, they would just hear, oh, the students are just having a protest. The students are just complaining. And they wouldn't hear Confederate people just showed up to our campus. No, the fall of my 2015 year, um, I remember there was a black student who said, the fall of my 2015, my, my first year, there was a Confederate rally around the statue. And people were saying they were, they were seeing KKK memorabilia in the back of trucks. And basically, like, yeah, basically, like, black people were telling other black people, don't go to that part of campus today, you know. But when we're talking about, like, the safety issue, like, people were treating it like the students were complaining and not bringing up that context and not bringing up the discourse we were actively trying to have.
1: Oh, and I read, actually, that someone brought a gun to campus two days ago, a social supporter. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm in
2: the midst of all these things happening, like mm-hmm. when did you decide to start making your, uh, the film that you're working on, um, yeah. Silent Sam?
3: Right, so we decided doing that actually in the, the spring semester. So I spent like the whole like fall semester being like, like part of my sort of anxiety was coming from the fact that like, you know, after I'm gonna leave this position and when spring break begin or begins and um, at that point, you know, the stories are just, the, everybody's going to be about to graduate. And so the Ligaya's, uh journalism classes uh, started the spring semester. The ones that she was, te- the, she, was, she was teaching two documentary, or two sections of a documentary course where she was planning on pitching to the two classes this, you know, documentary. Um, and they, whoever wanted to be a part of it could do it as a group project, uh, really large group project instead of doing individual documentaries. And I think, honestly, having that resource is really how the film got made. I don't think the film could have been, well, we could, we could have tried, but I, I don't think it would have been as, um, as good or as substantial without all of those students who agreed to be part of the process.
1: So, so, so tell us more about um, Silent Sam and, and the film and the vision for it.
3: So, Silent Sam, we started the, the project off. Um, should I explain impact producers, what that means? Sure. Okay. So, before we even talk to any of the the classmates, um, Ligaya had uh, me and her tried to figure out who the impact producers should be. So, impact producers are basically people who guide the process of making your film, um, as well as uh, what to do with it afterwards and their job is basically to try to make sure that the film has as much of a positive impact um, as possible that would be good for the community that you're working with so the community we were working with was basically you know the UNC Chapel Hill community more specifically like UNC Chapel Hill activist community or people leaning towards that side the, the students of color of the university uh, so it's were like our main, communities that we were trying to make sure that we were bringing something to because they were the main community that we were uh, using resources from and, and you know, there, and they were the, this, we knew that I sort of recognized that over the course of the year, a lot of times the black women were the ones who were leading things on campus, but whenever there was an article or, or any kind of mention or awards or, or anything, those were the first people to be excluded from the narrative. So when we uh, first tried to figure out, okay, who's going to be the people judging our impact, judging how we process the film, prioritize the subject, I first looked to who are the, the black women who have been leading, the, leading the, the movement in different ways and saw if they were the ones who would be interested in being impact producers. So we asked Maya a Little because she was uh, she and, and Lindsay were heavily leading the Silent Sam sit-ins. Um, they're grad mm-hmm. students and they had, they had been doing it like basically since it started and it made it even more organized. Mystery Bonds, who is an artist and activist, and she had been doing activism through poetry. She was connecting multiple social justice focused organizations. Um, she had helped organize the, the boycott. Um, her and Kristen Marion, uh, who's our third impact producer, helped organize the boycott. And Kristen Marion was also the president of the NWCP. We had the leader of the black or organization, Angam Check. The, there's this organization called Black Congress that is basically a group of black leaders who uh, work for issues that are, con- are of concern to the black community, basically. And so, like, all of these people did have different roles and they're basically identified as different parts of a movement. And I, that was also done because I, I knew that, like, even in how I've Talk now, I was the co-president of the Campus Y ended up kind of also being roped in as an impact producer. My only concern with being co-president of the Y is so that I was very cognizant that I was the representative of a predominantly white organization. And so even though I'm, I'm a black leader still, I was very wary of accidentally making the Campus Y take over the entire conversation of what happened on campus, especially because that happens so often with black women not getting the recognition they deserve, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. That, that basically, like, set up our impact producers, and then we, they helped us identify what parts of the movement were the most important to them, and then also asked, we also asked them um, what part of, their, of the stories of our movement wasn't really covered properly or thought they thought should, they should go more into. And the main thing that they said is that nobody really covers the fact that we are actively organizing. Mm-hmm. In the protest, it covered the fact that our sit-in exists gets covered but the process and the work sometimes even the strain and and the celebration like all of that goes missing. So then you guys have it sounds like a really strong impact producing team
2: and then Mm -hmm. I guess how how um is the the production team approaching like the filmmaking process? It Mm -hmm. seems like there might not be just Uh, one director, it seems like there's a bunch of collaborators, or how is that production process structured? Do you have any sense?
3: Yeah, so, yeah, we we don't have a director. Um, We have, our professor was basically our executive producer. The one thing that I really appreciated from her is that, so everybody everybody had input on the team about, or uh, we we tried to make it so that everybody got a chance to interview someone, to do an interview, um, and we structured the interviews based off of who we thought understood more about the, the issue and um, who our impact producers be more comfortable talking to. Uh, and we structured our event that way too. So for instance, uh, so the class predominantly white and not all of them knew that much uh, things about what the movement entailed and what was going on. And so we would look at the events and if it was a, it was a closed meeting, then we would think, okay, who's the best person, who, who, who could go that wouldn't, uh, whose spirit wouldn't cause a disruption to what needs to happen? Like who could go without disrupting the work? And then before the, those types of meetings, we would talk to them, hey, um, this is the background of XYZ, you can't tell anyone this, you know, uh, and make sure that they had that background and were clear and comfortable. And then we would go back to the impact producers 10 minutes before, 30 minutes before and ask, hey, are you sure this is okay? You know, understanding that having a camera there is a disruption, even mm-hmm. if um, you're the quietest photographer, filmmaker in the room,
0: um, mm-hmm.
3: and that your presence is still like a little bit of an intrusion. Even like mm-hmm. as me as a friend having a camera, I'm still an intrusion with the camera. And then we also did the same thing with interviews. It would be like, do you feel more comfortable talking to If we like, Would you be more comfortable talking to me or are you okay with talking to, would you rather talk to someone you haven't met before? Are you comfortable, do you want to have another black woman interviewer in the room with you um, or do you want something different? And we were very open about that, that whatever, that the the ultimate uh, thing is that not only that we make an impactful film, but that the process doesn't cause re-traumatization and that it doesn't stop the work that you're doing.
2: Wow. wow, that is amazing. So that's so <laughs> important and wonderful. And like that is an example of a decolonial practice, like really disrupting how you organize shooting the film and who has stakes and what's being um, portrayed and documented and making sure that everyone's taken care of. So I think that's like a really wonderful example. So thank you for breaking that down, Courtney. But we're going to take <laughs> a really quick break. And then once we return, We'll switch gears to talk about um, the commons and what went down to a false. Cool.
1: We'd like to welcome you back to Bad Feminist Making Films, a podcast presented by Risa and Ethnocene Collectives here on Full Service Radio. And today we are talking um, to the wonderful Courtney Simone. Uh, and we're going to now talk about sort of what's happened um, in the recent weeks and months, um, but actually really weeks, uh, with you are attending the True False Film Festival and sort of seeing that what happened with another film project that was also sort of centering um, around the issue of Silent Sam um, and, and how you responded. So, Courtney, can you go ahead and um, kind of tell us a little bit about um, your experience going to True False and, and what happened?
3: Yeah, so I, I went to True False as part of um, the Next Stop Fellowship. They have secured funding for us to... Uh, to go to, to True Falls. Next Doc is a program that uh, supports the next generation of diverse filmmakers, uh, or, di- or people of color from, uh, filmmakers from 20 to 24. Uh, and so it just so happened, you know, already, they had already seen the Silent Sam film. Um, and so they knew about things going on on campus and they heard about a similar film and was really asking me if, if this was our film. And uh, and I decided to, to go. Uh, and while I was sitting there watching, I I wasn't sure how I felt about the film. I just felt uneasy and almost like triggered in a way. Uh, I don't even know if trigger is the right word, but like uh, I just felt like something was off. And then looking, looking back on the film, I think what it was was uh, like just listening to. So when the filmmakers come on stage, one thing that I've noticed is that filmmakers are often taken as the experts of the issue um, when the people who are in the film aren't there. And so, whenever like someone would ask the directors about uh, the uh, the film, uh, or you know, like about what's going on on campus and everything, like they wouldn't ha- they wouldn't be talking about, oh, um, how one of the the people featured in the film are on trial now for things that maybe are kind of like referenced in the film, you know that that people are still facing persecution, that um, our school is losing diversity funding, and maybe you should put some of your your money towards that. You know, they weren't mentioning that. And then along with it, um, there was a heavy focus on the protest. So uh, the protest, protest, uh, or the the film focused on protests in two areas of campus. And by just focusing on our processes heard in the the video, it kind of felt like we were being dehumanized in a way, or like Mm -hmm. uh, the organization was taking out of movement. You know, all the organizing, all the planning, all the meetings, all of that context that you need uh, to understand what's really going on on our campus, that if you were talking to an activist or a person of color, all the things they would try to tell you to explain why people are having a protest and why it matters, mm-hmm. all of that was like stripped away.
2: Mm-hmm. And there was
3: only the protest. And I felt like I was watching uh, just the news on repeat. You know, the, mm-hmm. the news that made us want to make a documentary that was different from that.
2: So after you saw the film and you were sort of mm-hmm. feeling uneasy about it, like, what steps did you take in order to get from being an audience member to eventually, you know, making a statement on stage next to the filmmakers with Facilitator. So how did you get to that point?
3: So I felt uneasy, and I kind of just kept talking to people about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, right after I saw the film, I went across the street uh, to eat dinner with my with the, the fellows in my program, mm-hmm. um, and I was telling them about it. Just, it was perfect timing. They were there. And talking about, like, what... The the pieces that I felt were missing, Um, and just over the course of the weekend, I just ended up talking to more and more people, and I ended up running into Suki and uh, Mike at the dinner, and I had enough time to really introduce myself and ask them uh, one question, which was do the filmmakers, or do the, the people who emerged as characters, and because, you know, they, they said it was an objective film, and so technically they didn't do any interviews. But the filmmakers that they identified as emerging as characters, even the q and A, I I asked them if they knew that, they were, that this film was being shown. And I don't remember their exact answer, but I knew it was something that was kind of, uh, that's something that made me think that I probably should go back and just check. Because if the filmmaker, if our, if our impact producer, so the three people featured in the film, the three activists who emerged as characters, are also um, impact producers on the Silent Sam film, and they're also my friends. And so I could just text them, and be like, "Hey, you know, are you in, you, you know you're in this film? Did you have a piece to play in it?" Cause they, I figured if they had insight, if they had some kind of relationship with these filmmakers, and and they like condoned it, and they think that it's a good idea for the film to be shown, and they have that relationship established, especially, and they had that input, then it's okay. And so I messaged them that night after I heard. The answer, and really, the next morning was when people started getting back to me saying, "I didn't. No one told me about this film. What film?" <laughs> Question mark. You know, all of the uh, uh, and and when I started finding out that more about some of the processes that uh, the film, the person who was in the field for this film had actually been doing, you know, filming activists when they don't want to be filmed, which is something they kind of touched on in the Q and A and just like you know and the pure fact i think that this film was being shown to a predominantly white audience where these filmmakers were being taken as the experts on this issue where um their film was being taken as the fact of what happened on our campus the fact that like everything that I was showing wasn't true and that also if i hadn't been there if i hadn't happened to have been there with next Doc, that we wouldn't have known then we kind of figure uh, i figured something had to be done and at that point mm-hmm. people were telling me that true false is true false is a festival that is that i would hope would understand if a film that they're playing is problematic and would and I, I think that the audience i would hope that the audience there would be receptive to it and and just the, the serendipity of it all for me to be there we figured that like it would mean more to hold the field accountable, especially because this kind of thing we, that, that we see, the, the idea of extracting a film from a community and profiting without telling people or, um, or profiting without like uh, giving much back to the community happens very often, with, especially with white filmmakers and POC communities, that this could be an opportunity to, one, use the public stage to make sure that we can hold them accountable enough for them to listen to us when we get back to Chapel Hill, since we all live in the same city, um, mm-hmm. and to also like bring attention to how this affects the rest of the documentary world, but in a very public way, so that this conversation that's been bubbling in backwards background for a long time,
1: to make sure that it finally bursts. And it has the, had a big impact. And, and tell us what happened. And tell us what it was that you wanted. You know, these filmmakers who did not have deep relationship with um, with your colleagues. What you wanted them to know, and what you wanted—not only them, but you know, everyone else in the documentary world—to learn or ask themselves, you know, in making a film.
3: Honestly, think that it all goes down to the phrase that we use that um, we borrowed from the Southern Documentary Fund, who I think borrowed it from the uh, the disability movement, um, which is "nothing about us without us is for us," mm. and that idea is just rooted in. You can't, and I think I might have used an analogy similar to this, but you can't go to a community and a community says, you know, we don't actually need anything from you, and then you still try to do something using the, com- the community's resources and lead with that, if that makes sense. like you, Because documentaries affect people so deeply, the people who you're affecting need to be able to lead it. Um, The community you're working in, especially when they're black and brown or when they're lower income or when they're LGBTQ and when they're any other vulnerable community that has not been treated right already. When you have those communities, then they need to be able to lead their own stories because for so long they've been excluded from that process. And that exclusion has created a norm of, uh, of a narrative that is not true. And we've gotten used to seeing that narrative. And we've gotten so used to it that when we see it in a festival, we might not even notice it sometimes, and that's an issue. So the whole, the whole thing that we've been calling um, for for the commons and the other field, other fields, is to basically say, you need more than uh, if you're working in a uh, in a in a black community, you need more than a black sound person, you need more than uh, uh, a, a a black cinematographer, you. You need to make sure that the, the community leaders, if you're doing a, a story about uh, a school in uh, the eastern part of North Carolina, you need to have a community leader from eastern North Carolina taking part in the making of your film before, during, and after. And it need, they need to have an active part in every part of the decision-making process.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I guess along with that, also saying that um, every identity, but especially like privileged identities, create blind spots. And mm-hmm. those blind spots are also why it's even more important to make sure the community is leading. Because sometimes you may think something's the right answer, but the reason why why you think it's the right answer is because you can't you can't see, you know, like the tree you're gonna run into if you go into that direction. But the community can't. And they can tell you. Because I think in with um with the common film kinda when I was watching it, I just felt like there were so many things that uh, if they had interacted with us, we could have red flagged it right away for them and told them maybe you don't need to do an observational film about this subject because it's not enough, it doesn't give us enough context or um, we could have asked what the point of the film was. We could like so many things, or, or we even could have told them, hey, um, because, of your, because of your gaze, because you're coming in from the outside, you're not the right person to make the film and I think in the question and answer they even say we knew we weren't the right ones to make the film. And so if they mm-hmm. had like worked with us we could have like seen their huge blind spot, their yeah. their white gaze and said, Hey, you're right. You were right the first time when you said you don't need to make
1: this film. I think you need to put your camera down or choose something else. I thought it was um, really interesting in the Q&A, Courtney, how they sort of said, well, we didn't make a character-driven film. We ah. um, we made an objective observational film, which really goes into this problem of colonization and this idea that there's this fly on the wall that has its roots in mm-hmm. documentary and anthropology, the idea that somehow yep. you can be a part of it and that you are the quote-unquote neutral. And that is, mm-hmm. as you said, that's the world that we're We're accustomed to seeing and and people aren't accustomed to questioning. Um, Uh And so I think you you all uh, pushed back and said, um, no, there were characters still. Uh, You didn't have the relationship with them. Um, And I I was looking at this manifesto that the Next Doc Fellows, I believe, wrote. And it Mm -hmm. says, um, I'm going to read some of it, if that's OK, because it's really powerful. Mm -hmm. It says, to filmmakers, if the characters in your film are all POC and you and your crew are not, make a different film. To funders, Mm -hmm. stop funding extractive films by filmmakers who are not from the community they are documenting. When these kinds of projects come to your table, ask the difficult questions about who is making it and are there people of color already making this film about their own community? Mm -hmm. To programmers, stop validating the colonial lens and perspective in these films by programming them and giving them a platform and helping to build the careers of their makers. To audiences, a film is not just a film, how it was created and who creates it matters too. And to me, this is not only the you know, decolonial side, but also the feminist side that you spoke about so eloquently before the break, that it's all about the process. And mm. all, that example you gave and how you're making Silent Sam and every single interaction being healing and meant mm. to like build people up and organize them, um, and mm-hmm. their power, not just in this moment, but long term, is kind of at the heart of all of this. Um, but you were you were on stage, you know, with these um, filmmakers who are part of your community and you had the conversation um, okay. in a, in a deeply thoughtful way. Um, but it's still it's not hard to kind of put yourself out there and it's created this whole conversation now in the documentary world which is rad and amazing it's it's furthered this conversation but you know how are you after you know and, and there's a lot of work emotional labor etc to sort of have to make these interventions and to have to go through an experience like this and also to make the choice to do it. So Mm -hmm. how are you feeling after having, you know, been in this very public venue, calling attention to, you know, an injustice that you and the other, Mm -hmm. your colleagues and the other organizers and characters um, have experienced? How are you doing right now, I suppose? And how are you like living through this moment? Where do you want to go with it? I think I'm doing a lot better now. I think the
3: first, so the first day I definitely felt like uh, when I woke up after this event, like I had finally breathed, just because you know the time that I was at the festival from Friday night until uh, I was, until after being on stage, I had just been constantly thinking about the the this issue, the what whether we needed to do something, what the right way to do it was. Um, and so the day after that, I definitely like felt like completely relieved. And then I think the next day, I think I just realized I felt the weight. Of what an opportunity this was Mm -hmm. and also like the weight of being so public I'm low-key a shy person Mm -hmm. (laughs) doesn't seem like it now but I'm supposed to be (laughs) Uh, and I think like I I felt like I I almost like went through like a mourning period because I felt like this is such an an opportunity and the way to push it means I'll have to give up the peace that I thought I was going to have after I graduated, after I left UNC, but the trade-off would be that I would be doing work that is maybe even more meaningful uh, and something that I might have been accidentally uniquely positioned to, to do. Because part of the reason why this con- these types of conversations sort of end up like dying out a little bit or um, don't get brought to the forefront sometimes is because, like, I think like uh, the the having a little bit of an activist theory or um, having the background of having been engaged in something and, and even to like have been able to see the success and to also have the background of being a filmmaker. I don't know how often that happens and how often like those types of combinations, people with those types of combinations end up with the microphone to tell everybody what they're thinking about in predominantly white spaces or in um, mainstream spaces. And so, I think on on that end, I'm definitely ready to um, make sure that this conversation that doesn't one, one, that this conversation doesn't just become a conversation. So I think that we've been talking for a while, and especially to, to to make sure that like people know that there are that at this point we can we need to see action, we need to see results, and that we're all capable of it, and that it's all possible, and that it it could be very difficult to. To to start telling filmmakers, no, you you might not be the one telling the story. You know, as a funder or as a as a festival, you know, we're not going to play your film because you're the person in your film didn't have an, enough autonomy in how this film should be made. That's difficult. You might not. You might get some hate mail from that. You know, but I think that's the work that kind of needs to be done, and I'm I'm kind of excited to, to push that. I think we're moving into a world where. Maybe we'll get more intergenerational filmmaking, maybe student filmmakers will get more respect as filmmakers mm-hmm. and student films get more respect as films and we'll start seeing uh multiple generations coming together to make something. And you know the, the student is the director, the uh someone else is the producer and people are all coming from the communities with some input from someone who has some extra resources. I think uh the future is community led. And that'll become more so community-led as communities are have more and more power, which it seems like is starting to happen. And this is this is the beginning, I think. It's the beginning of a lot, uh, a lot of work, and hopefully, like a lot of um, successes.
1: Right on! I'm ready to follow you into that future. Yeah, totally.
2: <laughs> I think Courtney, you bring up a, a really great point. Is that this conversation? has been happening for a while and also like the the like there's been you know people doing this work and creating spaces like for example you said you know you took a class with Ligaya, um about documentary and it was that space that she crafted where this film emerged and then you are uh, doing a fellowship with next doc um, mm-hmm. which created a space for you and a, and a bunch of filmmakers to come in and watch these films and that was the community that was helping you kind of think through what's happening what am i seeing or like oh yeah this is what i'm seeing so what you're saying about you know the community being important for the future and us having to restructure how we create films is super important because it was those communities and and the work that was done before that created this space for Mm. you to then be like hey Actually, that's not true. That's not right. There is these, there's these other people that are, you know, doing this work in a particular way. So I love mm-hmm. how this situation was was a prime example of why community is important and why, you know, these ideas of like authorship of one person telling, you know, of one person creating the story is the reason or should be celebrated for um, this one work isn't really a model that we should use anymore because it's like we're all working off the backs of you know, the people that came before us. It is really with the community that we can change how we approach creating documentaries and also creating a future, so
1: mm. I love that. Me too, we need new models and we need those mm-hmm. models to be mainstreamed um, and that would really change the stories we see and, and how we understand our world. We're almost out of time and wondering if you have any final thoughts um, kind of going back to community, you and the Next Doc Fellows, um, your Silent Sam team, anything you um, would want to put out there for us to kind of keep in mind and learn from based on your experiences working on your own film, but also, um, you know, confronting the commons uh, as a film and and where you want us as filmmakers to go from here.
3: I think something that uh, I'll say is that to remember that this is systemic um, and to remember that every critique that we have in the commons can be found in so many other films and that we all have the responsibility because like like the the next Doc Sellers wrote, like even as audience members, we have a responsibility with what we decide to consume and what we decide to refer to others to consume. Um, And so at the end of the day, like, this issue belongs to to all of us. And also as filmmakers, to realize that the power of filmmakers and of journalists, because I would also, you know, this documentary is also journalism, our power lies in our ability to frame and shape the way people see the world. So if we're not doing our job right, if we're putting on a colonial frame, if we're, um, uh, you know, I, I... I heard a quote the other day that, uh, or actually, I, I asked somebody what colonial gaze meant to them, and they, they mm-hmm. ended up saying that colonial gaze creates uh, an imbalance that, when not corrected, eventually leads to death. Um, and, you know, we could unpack that, I, but there's not enough time for that. But, like, if, we're, if that's what we're putting in our work, if that's where we're putting a colonial gaze in our work, uh, something that creates an that creates an imbalance that eventually leads to death, and that's our responsibility. Because we hold the power to do that. We, hold, we are the agenda setters. We are the gatekeepers. And so that deficiency in that area, that's our weight to hold
1: also. Well, brilliant. Courtney, thank you so much for lending. Um all of your experience and wisdom and really powerful perspective and truth telling to bad feminist making films that's been a great honor to have you on today and everyone can check out Courtney's full um, statement about decolonizing docs um, uh, we're gonna post it on our Facebook page um, and sort of the principles that she and the next doc fellows came up with um, for for how we should approach film so thank you Courtney Thank you, Courtney.
2: It was a pleasure talking with you.
1: And uh, this has been Bad Feminist Making Films on Full Service Radio. Catch you all later.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher. And our DJ sets are available on MixCloud.com slash Full Radio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at FullServiceRadio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullservicerdo. Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.